Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pasea, and Meshullam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Meronoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house, and Hatosh, son of Hashabneah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rahum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kelah, carried out repairs for the, his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Binui, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half-district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Maseiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower, projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate, towards the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section 
from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, your word tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. You've spoken it to us, and that it's suitable for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we believe that promise. And Father, you've put this chapter in your word so that you may speak to us a message that is relevant, a message that we need to hear. So, Father, we pray that you would focus our hearts, help us to be attentive, attentive to what you're saying, and may this morning, Lord, you speak through the Holy Spirit so that we may be more like your Son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, just outside the city of Jerusalem in Israel today, there is a complex called the Yad Vashem Memorial Center, and it's the, the International um, Holocaust Memorial Site um, over in, in Israel. And if you go to Yad Vashem, outside there is a garden called the Garden of the Righteous. And if you go around the Garden of the Righteous, there are lots of large stones, and on these stones there are plaques that have lists of names, people's names. And these are the names of the righteous, that is... Gentile, that is non-Jewish people, who helped aid and rescue Jewish people during the Second World War, during the Holocaust. And these plaques are there to commemorate them and remember them and honor them. So many of you will have heard of Corrie ten Boom, um, a Dutch Christian lady during the Second World War who, with her family, helped to hide um, Jewish refugees from um, Nazis in the Netherlands. Well, she and her family are, are on the list of the righteous among the nations. And there are lots of other people like that who, throughout Europe, worked, worked um, at considerable risk to themselves and sometimes even died in order to rescue people who were needy. Now, a sort of list like that is not one that you would normally read if you were going to curl up with a book in a nice armchair on an evening. You probably wouldn't read a list of names. Lists of names, they feel ploddy. They feel repetitive. It's not like reading prose or a poem. And besides, you don't even know all the people who are on the list. Who are they? But it would be wrong to think that there is no meaning to such a list. In fact, if you know the context, you read those names, it can be quite a powerful experience. Let's think about those names at Yad Vashem. What, is it, what do they represent? They represent bravery. They represent resistance. They represent people who didn't believe some of the lies that were prominent in society. And they were little pockets of light working in a time of great darkness. 
The truth is, those names tell a great story. They have their own story. And the same is true in the Bible. You know, whenever we come to chapters like the one we've just read, the plot seems to slow down, and we're given a load of details that we didn't ask for, and it feels a bit like filler. We want to skip on. We want to get to the bits where the, the plot gets going, and there's some drama. But if we skipped ahead, we would be making a mistake. Because here in Nehemiah 3, these lists of names tell an important story, something very significant. Now, we're looking at this story of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah contains partly the story of how the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt. The main character is Nehemiah himself. He was an Israelite who served in the Persian court. He was a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And we followed him in this story all the way from Susa in Persia to Jerusalem as he has sought to work to, to build the, the walls. He's heard that Jerusalem is in a state and ruins. He's taken it upon himself to be part of that change and try and encourage others to, to get a building project underway. And so we've seen his tenacity. We've seen his faith. And he has worked hard to ensure that Jerusalem's walls will be rebuilt. He got permission by Artaxerxes, we saw last week. He's come to Jerusalem, he's inspected the city. And then by the end of of chapter 2, he's managed to encourage a group of weary and vulnerable people to unite, join together, and say, well, let us rebuild. But in this chapter, there isn't any mention of Nehemiah. The spotlight kind of shifts away from him to a larger cast of characters, a bunch of difficult-to-pronounce names. And this is really important because it shows that Nehemiah is not always the main character. In fact, there are lots of main characters, people who rebuild these walls together. The emphasis is on the team. It's a team effort. And without this team, those walls wouldn't have been rebuilt. Now, we're calling this series in Nehemiah Rebuild. We're thinking about what it means to work for God's kingdom post-pandemic. How do we contribute to what Jesus is doing in the world and in this church? Now we have fresh opportunity. Now we're meeting together. Now we can be in person. Now there are fewer restrictions. How do we rebuild church life? How do we serve each other more? How do we cultivate community? How do we make our Sunday services um, like they used to be or even better? How do we serve our city better? Well, we've already answered some of those questions or or what it requires. It requires care. It requires prayer. Um, And we saw last week that we need to be motivated, not by a sense of trying to prove ourselves or, or from a state of shame alone, but actually from God's goodness. But today we think about the act of rebuilding itself and what it looks like for all of us to do it together. There is no one hero other than Jesus but we all serve side by side. And this chapter will actually tell us something important about how we do that. Now, God's kingdom is bigger than Grace Church. It should probably be said. I think that's obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Um, And there are implications for God's kingdom, not just in this church, but in our homes, in our workplaces, and around the world. But as we think about working together, I guess the primary context in which we can do that is part of this church. So I'll be speaking to that context today. But it has implication for any church, And if you're generally not part of a church, it's good for you to listen in as well, see what the Christian faith is all about and what its community should be. So, all that said, what does this passage 
teachers about our rebuilding project? Well, firstly, the first thing is this. Everyone can contribute. Everyone can contribute. Now, it's hard to envisage what's happening in this chapter, but basically, it's a description um, that goes round the whole perimeter of the walls of Jerusalem saying who did what. So it starts at the sheep gate, you may have no noticed, verse 1, and by the end, it comes back to the sheep gate. It's gone round in a circle. And you see all sorts of different people who are involved in the project, and it's incredibly diverse. So, for example, there are lots of people with different day jobs. Did you notice that? So look down with me. Verse 1, you've got priests. Verse 8, you have goldsmiths. You have perfumers. You have merchants later in the passage. I mean, I'm not even sure how many people have actually laid a brick before. There seems to be all sorts of different backgrounds that these people are coming from. They're also from different places. You've got people from Jerusalem. So like Azariah, for example, verse 23, who builds next to his house. But then you've got people who are from outside Jerusalem. So you've got people from Jericho, verse 2, or Tekoa, verse 5, or Gibeon, verse 7. These are all areas outside the city. You've got people involved at kind of every level in society. So you've got rulers like Rephiah, verse 9. He's a ruler um, of a district in Jerusalem. Then you've got the people of Tekoa, verse 5, who are just sort of commoners like the rest of us. Perhaps most surprisingly, given the culture of the time, there's re records of women building. Verse 12, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. This is incredibly unusual for the time. Women would not be involved in building work, and yet here they are getting stuck in, the daughters of Shalom. So it's a diverse bunch, all sorts of different people, and everyone has a place. Everyone can get involved. Everyone is given the dignity of work. And this principle is true today in God's church. Everyone can contribute. Everyone. No one's on the bench. It's not just for a bunch of elites who are highly skilled. You don't have to be a certain type of person with a certain type of impact or influence to be part of God's kingdom and contribute towards it. Whoever you are, regardless of your age, your gender, your experience, your intellect, not only are you welcome in this church, but you can be active in it. Now, our contributions might not all be the same. We don't share the same skills and abilities. But God has given us all things that we can use for his kingdom and his glory. So you might be a chatty person. You might be a techie person. You might be administrative, a really good organizer. You might have an eye for detail. You might have an aesthetic eye who can appreciate and cultivate beauty. You may be a problem solver. You may have life experience. You may have suffered. You may be able to see things through the perspective and eyes of people who often get neglected. All these things and many more are valuable in God's kingdom, and we all have something we can contribute. There is a place for you in Jesus' church. You know, it's been said that churches can be a bit like football matches. Thousands of people in the stands, badly in need of exercise, and 22 people in the pitch, badly in need of a rest. 
But that's not how it's been at Grace Church in the past. We've tried to create a culture where its members and regulars can be involved and active. And, and we've done that through things like rotors and serving on a Sunday morning, but, but not just through those kind of official structures. We've wanted people to suggest ideas, to take ownership, to care for each other. And as we seek to rebuild things here at the church and beyond, we need to recommit ourselves to that culture. And so in order to do that, we need people to feel empowered that they can get involved, to know that they have a place and that they have a part to play whoever they are. I just want to say this morning, God's church is designed so that you can contribute. Some of you may feel like you don't have much to give or you wouldn't know where to start. Some of you may feel like you've dropped in capacity. You used to be able to do more, but life's, life circumstances have changed. Um, perhaps some of you just feel like you're just not the sort of person who can give anything or be involved. Well, you are. Whoever you are, you are. Come and talk to us. We'd love to explore with you how, how you can um, get involved more. Some of you are looking for churches at the moment, perhaps students or others. Um, and this is relevant for you too. You know, wh wherever you go, wherever you, you choose to make your spiritual home, make it a place where you can contribute and be active. We want to be the sort of church that facilitates that, but there are lots of other good churches too. But wherever you go, contribute. Because that is what God has called us to do. And this picture in Nehemiah of the people working together shows that. Everyone can contribute. Secondly, we work together. We work together. Now, it's wonderful to have diversity in God's kingdom. People from different backgrounds and cultures. People with different gifts and temperaments. And we see a little snapshot of that in Nehemiah 3. But with diversity, there needs to be unity. There needs to be a common purpose, a, a sense of togetherness. And we see that here again in Nehemiah. You know, given, given the mix of people involved in this project, it is striking how unified they are. And the chapter hints at that in, in various ways. At one level, there's just the repetition of that phrase next to them. Did you notice that? Verse 2, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. Verse 4, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bayanar, also made repairs. Next to, next to, next to. It's a side-by-side -side project. You can imagine them all next to each other, tools in hand, ready to chip away at the walls and build them. They're working together. And we also see this togetherness in the way that you have the mix of people inside Jerusalem and outside. So, for example, you've got the people who are in Jerusalem. Verse 10, it says, Adjoining this, Jediah the son of Haramath made repairs opposite his house. So, often, the people who are in Jerusalem build the bit of wall that was next to where they lived. And if, if you're going to do that, you're going to make sure you do a good job. Because uh, if your city's going to get invaded, you want to make sure that your bit of the wall is standing pretty firm. But it's not just the people who are in Jerusalem who are rebuilding. There are Israelites from the surrounding regions, Jericho, Gibeon, 
Now, one could argue that they have a little less skin in the game. It's not their houses that they're having to protect. Nevertheless, they are there building the walls as well, working alongside everybody else. So everyone is working together for the common purpose. So you see, if one challenge to rebuilding is people not feeling that they can contribute, another challenge would be that everyone rolls up their sleeves, gets stuck in, but no one works together. Everyone kind of goes, around, goes on their own, kind of their own thing, their own agendas. So there has to be a sense of unity. Now, on uh, Thursday, I went to visit the Oasis Center in Gorton, and a number of you work for Oasis or have volunteered with it. It's a, a wonderful place. It's a center devoted to helping people who are struggling in the community. So it includes people who are poor, um, people who have mental health issues. They get um, asylum seekers, people struggling with housing, the sorts of people that the rest of society might pass over. And they do amazing work. They do crisis support for people who have a pressing need for, for housing or with debt. Um, they give opportunities for the unemployed to find jobs. They teach new skills, and they provide a place for lonely and isolated people to be welcomed and to find friendship and belonging. And one mantra that they repeat is that they, they say, we are family. That's who we are. We are family. They run these English classes, and it's, it's fascinating. So people coming to these English classes, you'll have, for example, internationals who don't have very good langu language skills in English, but they'll also have locals who perhaps have never learned to read or write. So within these classes, you've got pockets of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, but what they do is they mix them together, they split them into twos and threes, and they get them to help support each other with the exercises in the class. What does this do? It helps break down the boundaries. It gets people talking at some level. It creates little bonds. It creates togetherness. And that's what the Christian church should be like. Not just an isolated group of individuals, but a whole that is mutually supportive. We look out for each other, we work together. And so as we seek to rebuild, we have to watch out for anything that would undermine our togetherness. We gotta watch out for things like divisions, cliques. It's easy to have cliques in, in groups like churches, you know, friendship groups that are impenetrable to anybody on the outside. Factions, subgroups that come together around a shared perhaps culture or a view of a certain issue that define itself against other groups in the church. We have to be careful of things like rivalry where we, we have to resist the temptation to say things about, you know, how we've got the best life group or we think in our minds about how much better we are um, at a particular ministry than somebody else. But togetherness, it means that we have to be willing to be patient to bear with each other's annoyances and foibles, not grumble against each other. And if you see weakness, it involves being willing to get stuck in and help. You know, there's a reason why Jesus calls his church a body. We're all connected together. He is the head, and we're mutually dependent. And so we have to avoid any sort of behavior that would lead to amputation. We are together together. That's who we are. And so we can see change if we work together. That's what the Lord calls us to do. Finally, thirdly, builders need to be servants. 
Builders need to be servants. Now, when we read this chapter, we see that this wall would never have been built had it not been for people who were willing to be servant-hearted. We see unselfishness in this list of names. So what do I mean by servant-heartedness? Well, I think it means two things, being sacrificial and being humble. Just think about, let's think about being sacrificial first. So bear in mind that people building this wall, they are merchants, they are goldsmiths, they are perfumers. Building is not their day job. So what does that mean? That means that whilst they are building the wall, they are not creating their products and they are not selling them. But all the time that they work on the wall, they are missing out on potential for their own income. So they feel the pinch in their bank balances. It's sacrificial, yet they're willing to do it anyway. They're willing to work. Similarly, um, Jesus' church involves sacrifice. I think many of us know this. We give of our time, of our energy, of our emotional capacity, and yes, our money too. If we want to maximize our comfort, it's pretty difficult being part of a church if we get stuck in. But this is, this is what it is. It's, it's sacrificial. It's also humble. You know, working on this wall meant that some people, some important people, had to do some pretty menial tasks, okay? So what are the, the priests in verse 1? They, they serve the temple normally, and yet they've got a hammer in hand um, building a wall. That's not what they would normally be doing. They can consider it beneath them, but they don't. One also wonders how excited those builders were who found out that they'd be working not on the fountain gate, but on the dung gate, You see, working in God's kingdom isn't always glamorous or pretty. It involves carrying out tasks and getting involved in the mess of people's lives. And it's some of the things that we might not have chosen naturally to do ourselves. And it requires humility. It requires people not to think that it's beneath them. And it's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle. We always feel that tug not to be sacrificial or humble. And we see that in the passage as well. Did you notice the one negative note in the, in the whole description? Verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The nobles didn't want to work. We're not sure why. Was it because of the nature of the job? Was it that they didn't really respect Nehemiah and they didn't want to be subordinate to him? We're not sure, but either way, the heart of the matter seems to be pride. They saw the work as beneath them. And their refusal to work stands them out in the passage, and it's a kind of judgment against them. And so we have to be on guard against this attitude. We won't build together if we're not willing to be servants. Now, our previous minister, Mike, left in the summer, he and his family, and they had been here for 12 years. And I've got a lot of fond memories of Mike and his family, but there's one particular memory that I thought I would share this morning, and I always smile when I think of it. And it's a memory from about three years ago in this very building on a Saturday night before the Sunday, which was our big Christmas service. Now, Christmas is quite a big deal at the church. We have a lot of visitors who come. 
we have to put extra effort in to prepare um, the, the space and get everything ready. So on the Saturday night before the Sunday, this place was a hive of activity. People were getting lighting set up, instruments, tech. Um, people were downstairs as well, um, preparing the dining hall. And I went downstairs into the dining hall, and there I see Mike in his tracky bottoms on the floor, on a hard floor like this, on his knees, scraping up chewing gum with a knife. Now, I don't know what your initial response would be on seeing someone like that. It's the kind of thing where if you see a middle-aged man in trackies on the floor scraping up chewing gum with a knife, you sort of want to say, is everything okay? Is this a cry for help? But of course, the thing was that in that dining room, we were going to be hosting guests for a big meal. And we wanted to make sure, as we always do, that those who come and visit our church feel welcome and loved and are looked after. And part of being looked after probably means not having chewing gum on the bottom of your shoes when you're walking down to lunch. And so Mike was on his knees, scraping up chewing gum as an act of hospitality in order to serve those who are going to be coming. Now, it's a pretty menial task, okay? He's not going to get pats on the back for that. It's not particularly glamorous. And one might not expect that the senior pastor of the church would do that sort of behavior. He might have thought it was beneath him, but he didn't. He was willing to do it. Why? Because he was servant-hearted, and he was willing to do whatever was needed in order to serve other people. And that is exactly the kind of attitude that all of us should have. We see that in the, those who are building the wall in Nehemiah, and, and in Jesus' church, that's what we should all aspire to. Now, we've said that all of us feel the pull away from being servant-hearted. It doesn't come naturally to us. We're out for ourselves most of the time. So how do we, how do we become more servant-hearted? And of course, it's the Lord Jesus who shows the way, isn't it? Because he is the ultimate servant. He embraced humility and sacrifice in the most profound way. I want you to think just for a second about all the privileges that you have as a Christian. Just think about it. A clear conscience before God. We were able to confess our sins earlier in this service, weren't we? And know that they were dealt with. Everything that you've ever done that's shameful is not held against you because you're a Christian. Your sins are forgiven. Not only that, you have a hope that goes beyond this world and all its mess. A hope that extends into eternity. You also have the privilege of knowing personally the God who made you and who rules all things. And you can grow in knowing him day by day. You can speak to him. You can speak to him about the little things in your life every day, and he will listen and care. And you have the joy of being in a church family, alongside with Christian friends who are on the same journey as you are. You can speak with them, you can laugh with them, you can pray with them, you can cry with them. Isn't that profound? And we have all of those gifts and many more because a divine son stooped down from heaven. He became a servant, and he put his shoulders to the work, as Nehemiah would say. He washed feet, he healed diseases, and of course, 
most profoundly, he bore our sins in our place on the cross. He died. And he did this because he loves us. And those of you who who would not say you're followers of Jesus yet, do you know about this? Do you understand what Jesus did? Do you know what he offers you? Do you know that he, he is offering a hope and a joy that nothing else in this world can give you? But you see, Jesus' service, it is the game changer. Because what it does is that it shows us that a servant-hearted life is not a, a bad life. It's not a wasted life. The servant-hearted life is the best kind of life there is. And so when you see that Jesus has served you, that will encourage you to serve others, even in the most menial ways. Who knows, you might even find yourselves on your knees downstairs scraping scraping chewing gum up. Although hopefully not. I think the school's in a lot better place than it was a few years ago. But this is how it works. Jesus is the servant. He has served us. And so we can serve others. We can play a part of of building God's kingdom. We can do that together. Everyone can contribute. We can work in unity together, serving each other. And if we do so with humility, if we do so sacrificially, who knows what God by his spirit might be able to do through us. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we we see this picture of unity in Nehemiah, and we know that such unity doesn't come easy. We know that it's difficult for all of us from different backgrounds and views on things and all all sorts of diverse people to come together in, in unity is hard, and yet you've won us that unity through sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Lord, we do pray that you would help us work for your kingdom Help us to to know and believe that we can contribute. Help us to seek to do so together. And Lord, please, give us through your Holy Spirit a heart that is willing to be sacrificial, a humble heart. We so often think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Lord, please change us. Help us to see afresh, or even for the first time, that servant heart of the Lord Jesus, and may we serve him in the way we serve this church and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.